Good morning, everyone. Oh, wait a minute. We got a rocking deal here. Let's see. If you've been in church for much of your life, I wonder how many times you've sung How Great Thou Art. I, I can, I've been in church for almost all my life, born into the cradle roll of the church my folks went to. And the number of times I've sung How Great Thou Art in a number of different circumstances, you know, the memories, but what a great old hymn. Years ago, one of my first churches, the men sent me to the Promise Keeper. That was a big deal a number of years ago. And they held one for clergy only in Atlanta, Georgia, years ago. And uh, my, my, my men sent me back to Atlanta. 50,000 ministers under one dome. I, I think it glowed in the dark. It was amazing. But among the many memories I have there, one, one time we sang, 50,000 pastors, how great thou art under this dome. It was just unbelievably awesome. Uh, I also, I got home and we sang that at my church, and after the service, a, a little boy, a little boy comes up and says, Pastor, um, I, I, it, we sing that song, and, and I understand he must be a great guy, but who's Art? <laughs> so I said, go home and ask your mother. No, I, anyway. It is great to be at Desert Breeze Church one of the things I love about December here is it snows every Sunday on the screen. It's just it's very, very cool. But uh, Selma and I really do count it a privilege to worship with you, get to know a number of you. You are happy people, good people here at Desert Breeze, and I think that your future is uh, just looking great. 2021 is going to be the great year of the reboot for Desert Breeze, I think, and it's going to be exciting to see what God does moving forward. So glad that uh, Jason and Brittany Meyer are joining your team and part of what's going on here. You're going to love them. You're going to grow to love them as they serve the, uh, the youth of your church. Well, this morning, I want to talk about identity and basically say identity is everything. And we're going to talk a little bit later out of Colossians chapter 1, talk about some other things first. But uh, I don't know if you've had the experience Selma and I did not that long ago where someone somewhere in another part of the world ordered something on our credit card. And so we got, we got the call. Did you order a what? No, we didn't. But what? No. Okay, well, um, we're going to have to ask you a few questions. And first of all, what is your date of birth? And I'm wondering, okay, am I being scammed by someone pretending to, what, what's going on? Gave my date of birth. Oh, what is your mother's maiden name? What city was your best friend born in? What is your blood type? You know, what was the third na name of your third pet? All this stuff. I had to prove my identity. I had to, I had to let them know I am who I am. What a deal on this day of stolen identities, and what a mess it is. If you've had that experience, you kind of know what I, maybe you had a worse experience. We finally got it straightened out, cancel this credit card. You know, they send you a new one. They don't want you to miss too many days without your credit card. Boy, they want to get that thing right out to you, but on you go. Identity is kind of important. Now, when we come to Christmas, it's all about identity. In fact, Christmas is an inherently theological holiday. It's, it's, it's about theology. I know we like to make it, and I have no trouble with all of the, 
all of the uh, surrounding details of Christmas. We have Christmas lights up. We have a Christmas tree up. I even this year put up my little electric train goes around the bottom of the tree because all the grandkids are coming. And all the stuff we do for Christmas, we bake cookies, we go crazy. That's all fine. But at its core, Christmas is absolutely theological. Uh, It's what it's all about. Now, we're we're talking about the identity of Jesus Christ because Scripture, as you well know, tells us that in the fullness of time, Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That's Christmas. God, God becoming human. Boy, there's some theology involved there. And, And just kind of as we get into it, I want to just give you just a little bit of a historic sweep of all of the different discussions, not all of them, some of the different discussions about the identity of Jesus, the God who became became man. Now, theology, since you say theology, some people glaze over a little bit. Other people get ready for a fight of some kind or an argument. But theology at its core is simply the study of God. And, and, and as it developed in history, it's uh, fascinating to learn how different thoughts and ideas develop. In fact, really, you could break theology into three categories. You could break it into more than that. Biblical theology is just simply what the Bible says. So if we're studying God, what does the Bible say about God? Uh, and we learn that he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's sovereign and all these attributes just right out of Scripture, biblical theology. A second category would be historical theology. This is interesting. Well, to some of us, it's interesting. This is the development of thought about theological ideas because early on in the first centuries, they were figuring these things out. Early on, one of the first questions is, wait a minute, what is in Scripture and what is not in Scripture? That branch of theology is called bibliology, and that's how we settle on the 66 books of our Bible. Theology proper is actually God, and, and then Christology is, okay, second person of, of the Godhead, Jesus. And third person, pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And then you get to the doctrine of man, anthropology, the doctrine of sin, homartiology, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, the doctrine of end things eschatology, and on and on and on and on. And throughout history, these thoughts developed and changed. They were argued at church synods and, and, and at church gatherings. And, and it's fascinating to see, okay, they originally thought this, then some people thought this, and then that, and then, then the, the branches of theology go on. So you've got biblical theology. That's just what does the Bible say and how do we interpret it? You've got historical theology, the development of thought throughout the centuries, Then you've got systematic theology, and this is where a lot of people like to really get into all kinds of arguments and discussions and stuff. Systematic theology is just what it sounds like. It's a system whereby we organize categories of truth that come out of biblical theology, and then we also take a look at historical theology and see how that's going. And we systematize those main points of theology and, and the only thing about systematic theology, there's a lot of helpful things there, but it's also, it, it's also where we get off track. It's a system. It's a man-made system. 
And what can easily happen is our system defines who we are and what we believe. It's a system. It's not infallible. It's not perfect. It's just a way of understanding and organizing truth. So anyway, I'm sorry. You didn't ask for it, and I've gotten a little off the rails. Theology. Theology. Christmas is theological, and it's all about the person of Jesus and correctly identifying him. Let me take you on a little, a little bit of a historical sweep. Stay with me now. Don't fall asleep, but some of these names are like, I, I'm not even sure I can pronounce all of them, but I want to just give you an idea of historically how the concept of who the Christ was was argued, developed, and so forth throughout history. So I'm going to take you back. Regard, man has consistently come up with alternate explanations of Jesus' identity. Docetism in the first century. Now, here we go. Now, that little H minus and D plus, everyone agrees there's, these, there's the human Jesus who walked on the earth, but then there's the Son of God, or at least that concept, that's the divine. So docetism in the first century diminished the humanity of Jesus, elevated the divinity of Jesus. That's what the plus, and essentially said, well, since Jesus is God, he can't be human. I mean, logical, right? And the problem is when we bring our logic into theology, and it doesn't always fit real well. Well, then in the second century, Ebionitism, that did just the opposite. It elevated the humanity of Jesus, diminished the divinity of Jesus, and said, well, no, since Jesus is human, he can't be divine. And then you've got Gnosticism. You've probably heard of that one. Um, much of Paul's writing was going against Gnosticism in the second century. It diminished both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, that he's not human or divine. He's somewhere in between. Adoptionism, which has nothing to do with the kind of adoption we think of, but in the third century, that elevated the humanity, diminished the divinity. He's got a human nature, but God adopted him. And at some point, the logos took over Jesus' mind. And, it, you know, it's a whole other idea. Monarchism, there's actually two types here in the third century. The first one is modalistic. God the Father incarnate moved into Jesus. The second one in the third century said, no, no, the human Jesus was indwelt by varying degrees of divinity. It was dynamic dynamic monarchism so that at certain points, oh, Jesus was very divine doing the miracles. At other points, oh, I was just, you know, human. Arianism in the fourth century was said that Jesus appeared to be God, he was similar in substance, not really the same, and he was a created being. We'll see this in Colossians in just a few moments. Apollinarianism in the fourth century said Jesus had a human body, he had a divine mind, he had a human nature. The human nature he had died as God's mind moved into him. Nestorianism in the fifth century said, no, he's one moral being, but he's two people. In essence, he's schizophrenic, which is an interesting way to think of Jesus. Uh, you, I don't even know how to pronounce that next one. In the fifth century, one mixed nature after the incarnation, after Jesus became human, so he's neither human or divine. Monophytism in seventh century, human natures was swallowed up by the divine nature, making a third nature. So these are just a few Historically, there are many more isms simply trying to define the identity of Jesus Christ. That's why I say Christmas is inherently theological. Because this is, this is the incarnation. This is God moving into 
humanity. That's fascinating. How does that work? And obviously throughout history, it's been debated and argued and up and down and, 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 and back and forth. Now I want to tell you a story. And it goes back to Arianism, the one in the fourth century. It's a story of a young man. This is, this is actual historical. All the details get a little fuzzy, but it is part of history. A young man who was born during the third century in the village of Patara it, in Asia Minor, but it was, it was Greek at the time, the people. So this young man was, was Greek in terms of ethnicity. Uh, now the, the place Patara, it's not named that, but it's on the southern coast of Turkey. He was born into a wealthy family. But when he was a young man, both of his parents died, leaving him to be uh, an orphan. They died in an epidemic when he was pretty young. But he had a great Christian foundation. They raised him to, to be a Christian. So he took Jesus' words to heart when Jesus said, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. So this young man took his entire inheritance and helped people in his community that had all kinds of needs. And so he became kind of well-known, just an unbelievably giving young man, the way he was raised. He dedicated his life to serving God, and later on, he was still one of the younger ones, the church made him a bishop of the town of Myra, still in Turkey. He became the bishop of Myra while a still young man, and everybody knew who he was for his generosity. And people came to him that had needs, and he did everything. He, could. he almost became a legend. The emperor Diocletian took power, and the persecution of Christianity became severe. And during this time, this young man, the Bishop of Meyer, was one of the ones who was exiled and imprisoned. And at that time, history tells us the prisons were so full of Christians, of Christian ministers and priests and all the rest, that there wasn't room for real criminals. And the persecution, unbelievable. Well, the th physical things that were done to those that were imprisoned, that suffered uh, for, the name, for the name of Jesus. Well, Diocletian goes out of power. A lot of these people are released from prison, and it's unbelievable. Some of them had, had lost hands or eyes or had scars on their body from the persecution of believing to Jesus. And this young man was one of those that he was invited to one of the early church councils, the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea in the 400s, or rather in A.D. 325, is where the discussion of who is Jesus took place. That's why I'm taking time to tell this story. And this young man, the Bishop of Myra, was at the Council of Nicaea, in 325, and the discussion was between, I mentioned Arianism, Arius was the man who came up with this idea that Jesus was less than God. And so you had his followers arguing the identity of Jesus, and then you had really the stand of the church that Jesus was fully God and, and, and fully man. And this young man was on that side, but the, the, the arguments got heated. The majority of the church leaders in the Council of Nicaea had wounds of some kind on their body from being persecuted for Jesus. And, and the discussion got more and more heated, and it got, it got intense. And finally, Arius made a statement to the effect that Jesus is not God. And this young man gets up and walks up to Arius, hauls off, Whack right across the face, just slaps him in an insulting way, right in the middle of the church council. 
I mean, I've never been to a church meeting that got quite that intense, but this one, this one got, whoo! And of course, they had to verbally, you know, reel them in. Hey, down, 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 down. Now, who is this young man? The church sainted him. St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas. And his giving attitude started legends of all kinds. It is actually said that he had a family in his diocese that had three daughters. There was no money for dowry. They were headed for just a terrible life unless someone could help. He snuck in at night through the window, threw three bags of gold, one for each daughter. And, of course, the legend says that a couple of them landed in the stockings that were hanging there drying by the fireplace. You see how the legends get going? And away we go, and St. Nicholas was a real person that stood up for the identity of Jesus in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the good, the good Dutch people kind of took the legends of St. Nicholas, and, and it kind of began to expand, and they, in, in the Dutch language, they called him Sinterklaas. See where that's going? And so today, we've got all these legends about flying reindeers and toys and red suits and jolly old elves and leave cookies and all the rest. That is what it is, but here's the reality. Next time somebody says Santa Claus, you don't need to turn your nose up and go, well, that's just a bunch of pagan. No. Santa Claus is somebody that if you deny the divinity of Jesus, is going to let you have it. <laughs> that's my kind of guy right there. I just thought that was fascinating in history. That Christmas is about the identity of Jesus. And, and, and even a legend today had something to do with that centuries and centuries ago. Now, let me talk about Jesus' identity just from a few little snippets of Scripture. We could go on a long time here, but just let me give you some obvious ones. When Jesus Christ broke on the scene, when John the Baptist pointed out, when he broke on the scene, he came, in your notes, preaching the kingdom. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, understand, we tend to, in this day and age, I tend to, I tend to look forward to what Paul calls the blessed hope when Jesus comes back. I mean, it would be so great before anybody is inaugurated president if Jesus would just come back. Wouldn't that just kind of fix things? <laughs> Go ahead, pray that way. I'm on that boat. Anyway. He came not preaching Jesus. He came preaching the kingdom. And to every Jewish mind, that was like, oh, yeah. Because all the Old Testament prophets looked forward to a kingdom in which Israel would be established and the Messiah would rule. That's what they were looking forward to. And even in Jesus' life, the disciples kept asking him, is, is this the time that the kingdom is going to be restored to English, uh, to, to Israel? And, and I, th I think it's great. At one point, the mama of two of these disciples comes to Jesus and said, I'd like you to do something for my boys. Would you do something? Sit when you are king, put one on your left hand and one on your right hand. Will you do this for me? And, and of course, Jesus couldn't make that promise at that time, but they're thinking kingdom. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead and he's about to ascend into heaven, and he's given them the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. Go, go. What's the last thing they asked there in the first chapter of Acts? So now, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? That's what they were thinking. So Jesus comes from that time. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. He, he comes. He began to preach. And what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whoo! 
That gets the attention of the Jewish people. And what did he mean by that? Because that was centuries ago, the kingdom. is. He meant, here I am, the Messiah, the king. And those four gospels are all about identifying who the king is, who Jesus is. Matthew starts writing primarily to the Jewish people. There's more Old Testament quotations in Matthew than any of the other gospels. He presents them as the king. That's the book that has the story of the wise men and the royalty and all of that stuff. He is the prophesied one. That's what Matthew wrote. Mark comes along, different audience, different stories, kind of writing to Greeks, and most of what Mark writes is off the cliff notes of Peter. He got it from Peter, and it's a much shorter gospel. And it's showing Jesus not as the king so much as the man of action who can save the world. And, and the word immediately is all the way through the gospel of Mark. Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did this, then he did this. He, he's a man that does stuff and, and, and gets it done. And then Dr. Luke comes along. Whew, that's the... Uh, lingually, that is the most challenging of the gospels because Luke's a doctor, highly educated He's writing to a man named Theophilus, a new believer. Theophilus, I want to lay it out in order so you understand exactly who Jesus is and and what this looks like historically. It's the only gospel that has a sequel. That would be the book of Acts that also Luke wrote. Again, same story, same general purpose, different audience, different style, different way of doing it. But all of them pointing out who Jesus is. Then you got John. you got to love John. He's the fisherman who writes very simply, very simple words, very direct. And he tells us what his purpose is. It's so that you might believe. Here's some of the things he did. Not all of them, some of them, so that you might believe who he is. You look at the New Testament, 27 books, 13 of which, at least 13 of which Paul wrote. But the biggest chunk of the New Testament are those four Gospels. What are they there for? To identify Jesus Christ. Christ. And that, again, that's what Christmas is. It's inherently theological. It's identifying Christ. That's, that's what the Gospels are all about. So Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Jesus demonstrated his deity. In John, it says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence. If you know the Gospel of John, it's got to be, I just love John. He gives seven signs, seven major miracles. He also gives the seven I am. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am. But he gives seven signs. And at the end of the book, he says in in chapter 20, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. I didn't write them all down. They're not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and the believing you might have life in his name. That's what the gospel is all about, identifying Jesus. That's what we proclaim as followers of Jesus. He is God's only begotten Son. There is no other, anyone close to him. No one does what he does. No one can do what he did. He's the reason we gather. He's the reason it's all about Jesus. And if we do not properly identify who he is, if we get off on some ism or some weird little theological bent, we're not properly identifying the one who took this big chunk of New Testament, so that we would not miss it, but understand exactly who Jesus is. He demonstrated his deity. Jesus clarified his identity with his disciples. In Matthew, this is so good. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been teaching in parables. He's been, you know, the miracles he did were just amazing. But now he asks his disciples, they're way up north 
in the, in the Bible land. They're way up north in Caesarea Philippi. And, and he's asking them, so, okay, we're at this point of the ministry, the disciples still wondering, so, kingdom, now, what? And he says, okay, um, what do the polls say? <laughs> Which is kind of a strange question. But who do men say that I am? What's the opinion out there? Who, who do they think I am? Well, some say you're a prophet, and some say you're Elijah, and some, and then, of course, you're, well, okay. You guys, you've been with me. You've been listening. You've been watching. Who do you say that I am? And that's when, of course, Peter stands up, as he so often did. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I think Jesus got excited right there. He answered and said to him, yes, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father is in heaven. Fantastic. And then you've got to watch what happens right here, because this is a pivotal point. Jesus' disciples have correctly identified him. Remember earlier when they were in the boat in the storm, and Jesus calms the storm, and what are the disciples saying? Who is this guy? I said, they're still figuring it out. But here in Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, yes, okay, okay, we've turned that corner. Here's what's going to happen next. And Jesus says, we're going to go down to Jerusalem. And immediately you can see the furrowed brows in his disciples' faces. Jerusalem, that is a political hotbed. That, that's like not even, why would we go to Jerusalem? And, and Jesus goes on and says, we're going to go there. And uh, the elders, the scribe, they're going to take me, abuse me, put me to death, but I'll rise on the third day. And, and they're not ready for this. They're not ready. And Peter, who had been talking and given a great answer and been patted on the back by Jesus, says, no, Lord, no, no. No, that's wrong. That's not what we're doing. That's and, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, it's right there in the same passage. He went from, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to get behind me, Satan. Because Peter wasn't thinking Jesus' agenda, but Jesus just turned the whole boat right there. In this passage, we're going from the kingdom of heaven is at hand to I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to put me to death, but I'll rise again. And that was that was total theological whiplash for the disciples who were still thinking kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And we're going to have positions in the kingdom, maybe a corner office. Who knows? <laughs> and Jesus had a different plan. But he clarified with his disciples there in Matthew uh, chapter 16. Pretty amazing. And then, of course, Jesus claimed God's title. This is one of the most intense emotional chapters in all four of the Gospels, John chapter 8. And it's basically a, a, a growing argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. Who were there? They've been trying to discredit him, trap him in his words, make him look bad. And every time he t he turns it around on him, it's it's great reading. But in in chapter eight, oh my goodness, I, he starts to tell them, "I'm from above, you're from below. If you knew my father, you'd know me, but you don't." And they're 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 not happy. Who would be with that kind of? He's just putting them down. And I don't know how many people are around there. I like to envision a crowd just watching like a tennis match back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it gets more and more and more challenging. And finally, the apex of the argument is in verse 57 and 58 of John chapter 8. Then the Jews said to him, because he said something about Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. They go, what? What? You're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Come on. 
Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the place went ballistic when Jesus said, Why, why, why? Because every Jewish person there knew that I am was the name of God that God used when he introduced himself to Moses. When Moses, burning bush, said, well, who, who am I going to tell the leaders of Israel that sent me? They don't know who I am. I'm just a no. And God told Moses, you tell the leaders of Israel that I am has sent you. And God named himself the verb of being. I am, not I was or I will be, just I am became the name that God used. And Jesus used that name for himself before Abraham was, I am. In other words, he's claiming to be God. And that's why the Jews went nuts and picked up rocks to stone him and the place just blew up. And of course, Jesus moved on. It wasn't his time yet. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. I'm the king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus demonstrated his deity through miracle after miracle. Nobody did the things Jesus did. And by the way, every time we talk about the miracles being normative and uh, Jesus healed the multitudes, he fed the multitudes, he, he took, you know, I, I love all this discussion about global warming, and, and don't get me started, but I mean, only Jesus really controls the weather. Yeah. Peace be still, you know. It, it, Unbelievable. He demonstrated his deity. I believe every miracle in the gospel, not so much so that we benefit from a similar miracle, something good's going to happen to you. I think every miracle is to demonstrate who Jesus is. It's about his identity. It's all about identity. Who was he? Who is he? That's the key. And, and Christmas, again, is inherently theological because God became man. And that is a big, big deal. So, I forgot what I was saying right there, so we're just going to move on. Okay. So, anyway, let me take you to Colossians chapter 1, just for a couple minutes here as we start to land this plane, because this is one of the passages, the different cults, different isms that we discussed, one of the key places where they, they really get tied in knots over the identity of Jesus, even today with modern cults. This is one of the key passages where they will say, no, there's, there's several of them that you're familiar, if I named them, that do not see Jesus as God's only begotten Son. They see him maybe as he was an angel, or he's powerful, or he did this or that, but they do not correctly identify him, and that's pretty important that we do that. So in Colossians chapter 1, this is great. For this reason, verse 9, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you and ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you can walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us into the kingdom of Son, of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Here now, here comes the words. Verse 15, He is the image. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That doesn't mean He is a carbon copy. It doesn't mean, it mean He is the exact representation of God. He is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the cults like to say, there it is. See, he's a created being. He didn't exist from eternity past. All you got to do is study the word. It's used in scripture and it's used here in Paul's writing. And Paul argues for him. It means number one in rank, in rank preeminent. And he goes on to explain that here over all creation. Because by him, all things were created. That's what God does. He creates. All things that were created in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is, there it is again, preeminent before all things, at the head of the, and in him all things hold together. An amazing statement of who Jesus is and what he does even today. He's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the only one who's been raised to life, resurrection body. Oh, other people were miraculously raised to life. They died again. I always thought, what a bum deal. Would it be cool to be resurrected? Not if you have to die twice. But Jesus was raised from the dead and lives forever. For it pleased, verse 19, the Father, that in him all the fullness should dwell. Paul and Colossians had to argue against the Gnostics, had to argue against a bunch of philosophies that kept reducing the person of Jesus Christ. And for us today, it's so important when Christmas comes. Yes, we love that story. We see the sheep. We see Bethlehem. We see the innkeeper. We see the whole, you know, and a, a few years later when the wise men, oh, great. But here's the point. God became man in the person of Jesus. And that's why we have a Savior. It's an inherently theological holiday. So last three questions, or statements, rather. Scripture answers who came. It answers it very clearly. The Gospels give us an ongoing identity check, and who is this? Scripture answers well, who came at Christmas. Christmas answers how did he come. And that's that incredible story of the virgin birth, human mother, divine father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. She's with child. He's got two natures. He's got a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. He's the God-man. He's not a weird blend. He's not more one than the other. He's all human having experienced what we experience having been tempted in all ways. Well, how's that possible if he's Jesus? Temptation isn't sin. Temptation is temptation. He knows what that feels like. And as a result, we have an advocate in heaven, someone who's been there and done that, who understands us perfectly. But he is also God, a very God, nothing less. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and on we go. Christmas answers, how did he come? The cross answers, why did he come? The cross answer, what did he come for? Not so we could have another holiday. We got plenty of those. He came to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came to lay his life down for you and for me. And Christmas is just the beginning of his identity story. He came. He grew. I'm so glad Scripture doesn't give us all, you know, the elementary years, you know, the teenage years. Whoo, you know, it just tells us how he came and why he came and then what he did for those few short years to identify his person, the man 
the God-man who came for you and me to die on a cross, be raised from the dead, and offer us the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. So Christmas is theological. Hey, enjoy all the, all the decorations and all the stuff. But Christmas is theological. It's all about Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for that. It's amazing that an entire world pauses at Christmas to celebrate. Many of them don't even know what they're celebrating. I thank you that centuries ago, a man who correctly identified Jesus was willing to stand up and put down heresy. St. Nicholas, of all people. And Father, today, as all different kinds of isms and ideas and thoughts uh, just are all through our culture, may we be those that do not miss the opportunity to correctly identify Jesus to those who need to know him. Thank you for coming. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for dying for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.